Welcome to the fifth session of the Apostles' Creed, what it says and ways it means. Uh, my name is Brent Strawn. I teach Old Testament at Duke Divinity School. By way of review, we've been working through the Apostles' Creed, and we've been asking ourselves two crucial creedal questions. Do you believe this creed? And also, how do you believe this creed? Uh, being a Christian for thousands of years, as I've said before, has meant believing and practicing this creed, or something very much like it. We've also been thinking about two mottos that have helped us a little bit in thinking about the creed and its relationship to Scripture and, and life in general. The first is short words, endless learning. Uh, the creed is brief, but it takes a lifetime to know what it means and, and, and how to live it out. And the second one is what the Scriptures say at length, the creed says briefly. Both of these models are important. The first one uh, speaks to the ways the creed means. You know, it's a, there's an endless variety and, and a lifetime to figure out the various ways the creed means. And the second one helps us with thinking about what the creed says. Scripture remains an open book despite the helpful summary and focus that the creed offers us. So far then, we've covered how the first part of the creed I believe, credo, uh, is something like saying I do in marriage, pledging ourselves uh, to God, maybe even marrying God as the analogy goes. We've also covered the God part of the creed, the first member of the triune God that Christians confess and pledge themselves into, in the Apostles' Creed. And we also have spent two sessions so far on the second, Jesus Christ part of the creed. This is the center part that I've described as rather chubby. It's the meaty middle. It's controversial uh, middle. It's longer because of that, that it was important for early Christians to clarify how Jesus Christ also is Lord and God's only Son. We left off last time with my favorite part of the creed, Christ's descent into hell. That showed us how far Jesus was willing to go, but the creed isn't done yet and neither is Jesus. So let's move on to the next part. Here it is. On the third day, he rose from the dead. Well, here obviously the creed is speaking of resurrection, of Easter Sunday, which takes place three partial days later after the crucifixion. The creed uses the language he rose. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. But in the Greek New Testament, actually, this verb about God, uh, Jesus being raised is, is never active. It's always passive. So it's not quite right to say he rose or Jesus raised himself, but rather in the Greek New Testament, it's always he was raised. A passive form, which then invites the question, by whom? To which the answer is, of course, God. The descent into hell, therefore, shows how far Christ was willing to go for us. But the resurrection shows that God wasn't willing to leave him there. God's raising of Jesus from the dead, therefore, is another instance of what we've seen already in the creed. God's creation, God who is maker of heaven and earth. It is no surprise or coincidence that Jesus' resurrection takes place on Sunday, the first day of the week, because that's the first day of the week of creation as well. No coincidence there at all. This is a new creation. 
Now, we have to admit that modern people, and not just modern people, ancient people too, according to the Gospel of John and Doubting Thomas, modern people and ancient people have doubted this resurrection stuff. And not without good cause, right? I mean, the resurrection is a singular and highly unusual event. It doesn't happen every day. Confessing the Apostles' Creed may not remove all the doubts or wonderings or questions that we might have about resurrection from the dead, but Christians who confess the Apostles' Creed, who believe in it, who pledge themselves to God therein, Christians who do that from the very start know that God can do anything because God made everything. They know that God can do anything because God made everything. And so, just as God can do something new, create a fresh with an ovum when it comes to Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit, so also can God do something new, make all things new with a corpse on Easter Sunday morning. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gifts. The next part of the creed says that Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I'd like to say four things about this. First is that Jesus wasn't resuscitated in some fashion just so as to die again. No, instead, Christians affirm that he was resurrected and therefore also ascended into heaven. This is a new kind of life, a a new creation. Second, observe how all of the prior stuff in the creed to this point about Jesus has been in the past tense. Jesus was conceived, he was born, he suffered, he died, he was buried, he descended, he rose, he ascended. But now in this part of the creed, we get to the present tense. Jesus is seated. And where is Jesus seated? At the right hand of God. That's his email address, JC at righthandofgod.god. Is seated. That's the present tense. But what about this business about seated? Among other things, that Jesus is sitting down signals that his work is, is done. His service is complete. It's time, therefore, for others to serve him. That would be us. The third thing I want to say about this business about Jesus' ascension and his sitting down, which is often called the session. The third thing I want to say about Jesus' ascension and his session is that it shows that his ultimate endpoint, just like his ultimate origin, is divine, and it lies with God. If the descent into hell shows us just how far Jesus is willing to go for us, the ascension shows just how far Jesus is able to take us all the way to God. That leads to the fourth thing I want to say about this line, and that that's that Jesus' ultimate ending, his ultimate sitting down at the right hand of God the Father, folds back into the first part of the creed, doesn't it? It shows the interconnectivity of the Trinity and the creed, and, and how the latter, the, the interlaced and interactive parts of the creed, illustrate the former, the interrelationship of the triune God. 
I believe in God the Father Almighty, and now here is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Uh, I taught my kids the creed when they were fairly little, and I remember one day taking my daughter Annie to school. She was in early elementary school, and we got to this part of the creed. He rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And then Annie said, maker of heaven and earth. So she just went right back to the beginning of the creed, and I think Annie had it just right. Well, this leads us then to the last part of the Jesus section. From there, the right hand of God, he will come to judge the living and the dead. So, in contrast to what I just said, it's not quite right that Jesus' work is completely done. There's more yet to come in the future. He will come, the creed says. And note now that we're in the future tense. Jesus is his only son, our Lord. That Jesus is active in the past, active in the present, and now also active in the future. All time, all temporal tenses are known to the Lord. They are places where the Lord's work extends and reaches. Not only does the creed say that Jesus will come, but it specifically says Jesus will come to judge everyone and everything, the living and the dead. So again, let me offer a couple observations on this part of the creed. First, everybody gets their day in court. Even the dead. Even those who have been dead for a long time, and wrongly so, with their cases cold as millennia. Everybody gets their day in court. Second, everybody gets their day in court. Jesus is coming, the creed says, to judge. Judgment is often striking uh, to us now as a gloomy word, but that's not necessarily the case. In the creed and in Scripture, judgment is connected to hope and salvation. In the Old Testament prophets, the prophecy of judgment is is conditional. It can change if the people repent and change. Judgment in the Bible, and especially in the prophets, is is thus therapeutic. It's salvific. It's prelude to salvation, to change, to repentance, and to salvation. Another thing to consider at this point is to consider who is the judge that's coming. Who's the judge? And does that make a difference? How does it make a difference? The great uh, Jewish rabbi, Abraham Joshua Heschel, speaking of prophets and judgment in the prophets, said this, A father is disqualified to serve as a judge. Dads would be partial to the kids, right? Yet the judge of all men and women is also their heavenly father. He would be unjust to his own nature were he to act in justice without also being compassionate. Now remember in the creed, God is primarily father of Jesus Christ, his only son. And it is that son who suffered for us, was executed for us, went all the way to hell for us. But God wouldn't leave him there. And so, in the creed, it is nothing less, no one less than Christ himself, who has experienced everything human, 
who is coming to judge the living and the dead. In the words of Hebrews, not a high priest who's unable to sympathize with human weaknesses, but rather one who is exactly like us, tempted in every way, and according to the creed, fully human, as fully human as fully God. And so bothness, bothness strikes again here, not just God and human, but here in justice and in compassion. No wonder, therefore, that the Psalms say that when God comes to judge the earth in righteousness and with equity, the trees of the field will shout for joy. I didn't even know they had voices. And the rivers will clap their hands. I didn't even know they had appendages. That vision of judgment is worth saying amen to in the creed. See you next time.